Hey, everybody, this is Melissa McKenzie, the publisher of The American Spectator, here on The Spectacle, joined with Scott McKay, who is contributing editor, and also the publisher of The Hayride and Reviver.com. He is of Louisiana ilk, and I am, of course, in Texas, enduring the heat and misery. And we are coming to you sacrificing so much um, and talking to you because we love you. Uh, and Scott is going to lead today with a very important story, something that affects all of us. Yes. It is a profoundly important. Scott, can you please share? I have to what... pull this up on my phone so that we can so we can talk about this um, uh, most uh uh, in most detail. So there is a group, and let me see if I can refine this thing because I'm going to uh, make sure that we've got everything. Um, there is a group that is attacking an issue that I think pretty much all Americans have found to be more or less the bane of our existence, which <laughs> is the um, infamously unreliable ice cream machines at fast food restaurants and McDonald's in particular. So I'm just gonna read this. A coalition of right to repair activists is pe petitioning the US government for the legal right to hack and repair McDonald's notoriously unreliable ice cream machines. Um, the group spearheaded by iFixit and the nonprofit organization Public Knowledge has taken the fight for repair rights in a delicious new direction, fast food ice cream machines. The coalition has formally petitioned the Librarian of Congress seeking permission to hack into McDonald's McFlurry machines for the purpose of repair. <laughs> this is a request to expand the repair exemption for consumer electronic devices to include commercial industrial equipment, such as automated building management systems and industrial equipment, the petition states. So, um, and this has happened to everyone, uh, you, you know, especially if you have a taste for a chocolate milkshake when you go and get a burger through the drive-thru and they always tell you, oh, the milkshake machine is busted, right? Um, and of course, as we were talking about before we actually came on, um, the milkshake machine is never busted. It's that they don't want to clean the milkshake machine because it's a pain. Um, and so they tell everybody it's busted. And so, you know, you walk away with a whatever, Dr. Pepper or a Coke or something instead of a chocolate milkshake. Um, and you're seething over the fact that the fast food food employees simply don't have the energy to clean a milkshake machine. Um, and and this the, well, the thing is, is if they don't clean them, I, I will say this, you don't want a dirty machine. No, when With the studies that have been done, like on all the surfaces and all the things in fast food restaurants, the right. number one harbinger of germs is the um like the fruit smoothie machines and wow. the the like the milkshake machines 
They're right. terrible because there's all these little parts and pieces where bacteria sits. So really, right. if you care about your health, you know, go ahead. The the burgers, which are just laden with salt, killed those things can survive. We my son did an experiment where he sat out a Wendy's burger, a McDonald's burger, and I can't remember who else is that we used and sat them out on the counter to see how long they survived. The McDonald's one never died. And then we found out later that my son, who is autistic, saw the burger like three weeks later, four weeks later, because we were just watching, waiting to see you know, the the Wendy's one actually degraded really quickly because it's actually real meat or something. The McDonald's one, my son ate a month later after sitting out on the counter and didn't get sick. I mean, okay. so. I guess, um, I guess McDonald's is prepper food then, right? Like, it, it is prepper food. We need, to, we need to keep that in consideration. <laughs> Take the, it in. When the apocalypse but, comes, you can raid the McDonald's uh, fridge and grab all the burgers because they're they're uh, never going to degrade. Up. Yeah, it's essentially like a a, a um, you know beef jerky and a burger. But yeah. the <laughs> but the drinks on the other hand are where you get the salmonella. <laughs> so well, um, you know the thing though here is, and and there's a larger issue in the reason that we brought this up because you know obviously this week was Labor Day week, right? And um, so Melissa has ideas about Labor Day that I share. Um, but this is, look, this is sort of a, it's just a little data point in something that has kind of, you know, become very obvious, which is there's not that much labor in America anymore, right? So, if the milkshake machine is busted because nobody wants to clean it, right? You get paid to clean it. Nobody actually does the job for which they're paid. Um, and so service as a whole, I think, in this country is of much less quality than it was 20, 30 years ago or, or more. I mean, I, you know, I, I remember as a kid, you'd pull up to a gas station and there was a guy who'd hustle out there to to pump your gas and wash your windshield and, uh, you know, do all of those things. You would even pop the hood and check the, the, you know, fluid levels in the engine, you know, full service gas stations no longer exist anymore. Um, like that's all gone. Um, and it's, you know, it's something that you see across the board. You certainly see it at fast food restaurants. You certainly see it, um, in all of the places where people work hourly wages, um, it's less and less of a thing. And yet here we are still celebrating labor. Um, I don't know. It's, <laughs> and it's, nobody's it's, laboring. Here's my thing. Labor Day is a communist plot to focus on the workers of the world and you know, it's like I put it in the same category as like May Day or or International Women's Day. It's just baloney. And so like I what I really like is so <laughs> Texas A&M here, I, they don't shut down on Labor Day. They, they actually this, they make their students go to school. The teachers teach on Labor Day. Uh, UT is not the same. The rest of the Texas schools. But I'm like. 
just go. It's another feather in the cap of AM for for the uh average person, you know. Why should we have this celebration? I don't get it. Labor unions are, you know, as much power as they have, it's greatly diminished. And actually they seem to harm the workers more than help them, which is why they have actually, you know, very much diminished. And um, so anyway, I think that Labor Day is, you know, baloney, but I think a lot of our holidays are baloney. So, oh, you know, well, and, you know, the thing of it is, is that a holiday doesn't need to be baloney or it doesn't need to be real so that you enjoy it. Like, well, day yes. off on Labor Day is actually pretty cool. Like I'll take a four day weekend or three day weekend anytime I can get one. Um, I wouldn't but, know what that's like. <laughs> neither um, would I, but uh, <laughs> I like the idea of it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, but but you mentioning labor unions ties into something. I guess that I, I did actually want to talk about. I don't know if you saw this, but last week. Um, Donald Trump puts this video out talking about EVs mm -hmm. um, and uh, and how destructive they are from an economic standpoint, from a consumer protection standpoint, and so forth, and just lambasted the auto worker union bosses for mm -hmm. not doing anything about this move that the car companies are making, which is driven by the Biden administration toward producing EVs. Mm -hmm. um, and this is sort of an issue with me um, because like I drive a an 07 80 Bauer Ford Explorer, right? It was like the top of the line Ford Explorers, uh, Ford Explorer model that there was. Still love the vehicle. Mm -hmm. Got the check engine light just the other day, right? And so, uh, or actually, well, just the other day when, when this comes out. Um, and so um, probably since it's been taken to the mechanic and we'll see what the check engine light actually was, but I may very well be in the market for um, a vehicle, right? And as a car buyer, things have never been worse. Mm -hmm. The prices are absolutely through the roof. Um, and part of this is that production of vehicles that people want is way down, right? They're wasting resources on EVs that nobody wants to buy that don't hold up over time. We're going to find that out, um, you know, and, and the really kind of scary thing about it, for example, Ford CEO, uh, Jim Farley, who is actually related to Chris Farley, the actor. Really? Is he yeah. Canadian? Uh, I don't know if he's Canadian. I guess he's Canadian. Chris Farley was Canadian. Um, but anyway, Jim Farley basically says, oh, yeah, it's 40 percent less labor labor to make an EV than oh. an, an, an internal combustion engine car, um, you know, and, and like takes it on the road. Right. I know you saw this video. He takes his his F-150 Lightning on the road and laments the fact that there aren't car charging stations. Um, you know, and this was in California where they have so many and he still couldn't find them, had to wait in line for an hour to charge his truck. Um, you know, it's took 45 minutes to get a 40 percent charge on the thing, which is basically 80 miles. Uh, I mean, like everything about the user experience on this was crap.
Mm -hmm. um, and yet, you know, Ford is, uh, they shut their production line on EVs down and now they've cranked it back up and they're talking about, we're going to make more EVs than other kinds of cars by 2030. And there's government mandates everywhere. Um, and so they're basically destroying the auto industry. I mean, that's like literally what's happening. They're destroying the auto industry. Used car prices are up. The last time I looked, it was 76%. Okay. Um, so, I mean, and it used to be that you would use the auto industry as a barometer of the health of the American economy. Right. Right. Uh, were prices stable? Was quality good? Were people satisfied with the cars they bought? Um, you know, were domestic manufacturers competitive on the international scale and all these different kinds of things? You know, it was sort of the old line was as GM goes, so goes America. Right. Um, I don't know that that's as true as it used to be, but to the extent that it is, it says very scary things about the American economy. Well, I'd like to point something out for people who don't. I grew up in Michigan. I I was part of a Chevrolet family. You were either Chevy, Ford, or Chry and if you were like the ugly stepchild of Chrysler family. And so like family reunions, everybody was either working the line or somehow associated with the auto industry. And uh, unions and the bosses you know, over the you know, 70s, 80s, when there, there was competition from, you know, finally from foreign manufacturers. And that completely transformed the industry. And with the gas prices and everything, people were started buying, as my dad would say, rice burners. And uh, so then that changed the uh, industry. And then NAFTA happened and a lot of the manufacturing went to Mexico. And so the auto industry kind of transformed again through COVID the, you know, then enter the, a disruptor like Elon Musk with the electric vehicles. Right. And other companies tried, you know, Toyota was before Musk, even the big three had versions of electric vehicles, just nobody wanted them. Right. And so, um, you know, Musk made them cool and made them like the hot commodity that people want, but they're actually really crappy vehicles and breakdown. And like, you know, I saw this guy who bent part of it and it was a, a, a of the bumper and because the it's a unibody um you know ex shell on the on the on the guts of the car it was a twenty thousand dollar fix for just a fender bender okay yep. so the average person just simply cannot afford it and then what the car the manic Manufacturers realized through COVID is that severely restricted inventory because the vast majority. So, like for people who don't know, you have car dealerships, and they order a certain number of cars, and they make money a couple different ways. One is the number of cars that they sell and they turn over based on the size of their market and whatever. And um, so they can get bonuses, say for GM, if they sell a certain you know, volume, and then they can make a certain amount if they sell a certain volume of used vehicles. 
and then they make money on the vehicles themselves and then they'll have incentives if they're trying to get rid of cars that they have extra of so like you know maybe they have a bunch of these sitting around and the manufacturer will give the dealership a bonus um if they sell that vehicle or whatever so they'll have these big you know you see it like the toyota thon they'll have these big pushes to get rid of a certain kind of car and well, all of that changed with COVID because people weren't traveling as much and they they cut back manufacturing. And um, what the car dealers and the manufacturers realized is that with restricted inventory, they were making huge margins. And um, they didn't have to compete because there were so few cars available that people would... And it was an artificial restriction too. So like here in Houston, there's um, huge lots that are outside of uh, the airport and next to the railway filled with vehicles that they weren't delivering to dealerships because they were restricting inventory and holding those and they had stopped manufacturing. Part of it was they couldn't get certain parts. So part of it was that they right. couldn't get the chips because they weren't manufacturing enough. And so like there were part, and that wasn't the only uh, electronic parts that they were having trouble with uh, equipping the cars with. And there are still some supply chain issues, but what the, the car manufacturers realized is they were making money hand over fist and vehicles essentially became a made to order thing. And then you would get put on a list. So like at uh, Mercedes, for example, they would have a list, you know, the, the dealers were begging for cars and they didn't have enough. And so like they would know um, you could either, it was, it, it turned into an industry almost like housing where there were um, certain vehicles that they knew that were coming. You could special order one and then get one in six months. The dealers loved that because they were getting over retail or at retail, which is about $10,000, depending on the vehicle, sometimes more um, of pure gravy. And so if you can do that on one sale, instead of having to make 12 sales to make that same kind of margin, uh, you don't need as much staff. You don't need um, to manufacture as much. So the overhead for the, the um, you know, the different um, plants is not as much because they're not making as many vehicles, but their margins are great. And so there's no real um, now. If one car manufacturer ramped things up and undercut everybody just on volume, but what I'm seeing is this kind of tacit understanding, kind of like between airlines, where you know we might not even have to have a conversation, but we all know that this is a pretty good deal. And I think we're seeing that in the groceries and that sort of thing, we don't have an egg supply problem anymore. We have an industry that's figured out that restricting eggs, we can pump up the price, that right. it's better for us to just dump extra you know, stuff and kill the consumer with inflationary pricing that has continued even though we don't have inflationary product. So there's a lot of false falsity in the um, economy right now 
driven by uh, post-COVID perverse incentives. And yeah. it's killing the American uh, consumer. And so up until this point, because people have absolutely needed a vehicle, you know, when their vehicle died, but like I looking for my son, for example, for like a starter car, um, you know, it, it was not, I ended up buying, buying from a private individual and probably saving $10,000 by doing so just because the dealer wasn't going to give him that much for the vehicle. I, I paid him more than the dealer would give him, but the dealer would have turned around and dumped $6,000 onto the vehicle and gotten sure. it by the way, because right. it's so bad. Yeah. So like, you know, this is, and this leads to something that I wanted to talk about, which is people now, the American people are, are absolutely kind of getting jammed. And this is what a command and control economy does. So all of this, you know, um, string pulling is, is starting, is going to cause issues. Not to mention then we also have the issue of shrinkage. Like, so by that, I mean, and a shrinkage in the retail space usually means, right. you know, theft. That's not what I mean. I mean, uh, smaller sizes of products and all the, um, women out there who are grocery shopping and men too, but the, you know, the women who are taking care of their families and they're seeing like, I can go to Costco and get a bag of salad, you know, and it will feed a couple people, two people, but it used to feed 10. And so, you know, you're having this everything. And not only does it cost more, but you're getting 50%, 40% of the product, maybe 30% of the product you got before. And it's just killing people. I mean, a grocery run is just, it's just murder. Yeah. And so what's happening? What are people doing in response to this? Well, they're using their credit cards. So there's this piece over at was, uh, we haven't talked about this, but it was on September 1st by Tyler Durden, eight signs that we are right on the verge of a major credit card debt crisis. And um, so the amount of debt total, credit card debt has surpassed the previous record and is now um, over a trillion dollars in credit card debt in America. Uh, the interest rates on credit cards are over 20%. 20, 20.63 20. is the average percentage point. That's, that's, I mean, that's the usury is what that is. But it's usury, yeah. So, and then you have 47% of U.S. cardholders are now carrying balances from month to month. 53% of Gen X, 52% of Gen Z. 49% of millennials and baby boom, baby boomers, 41%. You know, the older you get and the, the higher that credit card, right. you know, boomers aren't most, most of them are not working. Right. So how are they going to pay that credit card off? Well, they're and not. They're not. They're gonna they're gonna die, and then you know their their kids are gonna have a lesser inheritance as a result. Right, 
The national average credit card debt grew to 7,227 in places, high expense places like Connecticut and New York, the averages is over 9,000 in credit card debt. And they are not making frivolous purchases. So most are because they are under, under financial strain. Um, let's see. Should I pop in as the 2020 college grad here? And yeah. <laughs> just go for it, Kate. Okay. Yeah. So, well, first of all, the, the, talking about Biden economics. So, I adopted my dog on Biden's inauguration, January 21st, 2021. She's a 50, 50 55 pound pit bull. So, she eats a lot of food, right? I get her a 40 pound bag of food about every two months. When I rescued her and I, I rescued her at four years old. So I was getting her this bag of food since day one. It was about $65. Ordered it and it was 41 pounds of food. Ordered it last week, 80 bucks for 40 pounds of food. Yep. And, you know, I will fully admit I'm in the credit card category and that all sounds about right. You know, I like I, I make fine money and it's just ridiculous. I live alone and have to pay one person, you know, rent. And I, like you just said, we aren't making frivolous purchases, but I have to spend $85 of for, mm -hmm. you know, money. And I have friends with two kids. Yeah. So, you know, I'm like, my dog's expensive. <laughs> it's, it's real is, you know, is what I can say. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, is that like we had, there was the, the COVID era slush funds that were handed out. Right. And then people, uh, the American people, much to the chagrin of the federal government, um, actually saved quite a bit of that and didn't spend it all immediately. Well, now last in the last three weeks, Americans savings has completely dried up. Now, on October 1st, uh, federal student loans are going to have to start being repaid. Mm -hmm. So you have all of these uh, millennials, Gen Zers, who are um, going to have to start paying again $1,000 or $500 or whatever it is a month. And, um, and then you have interest rates so high that nobody can buy a house. And so you have this kind of uh, stagflation that we haven't really seen since the 70s and 80s. Right. The problem now is, is that the people who have grown up, you know, when I was growing up in the 70s and, you know, I was born in 68, uh, it was not terrible, but it wasn't great. Like my memories are that, you know, we had powdered milk in the house and we ate salmon patties and, you know, meatloaf. And the reason for that, young people who are listening to this, is because it was too expensive to buy a whole cut of meat, something that this generation is completely used to. Like there, there was a time when that just wasn't the case, where gas prices are now going up right now. And so like, and we've in addition, we've drained the the um, our reserves 
um, our stockpile of gas. And so there's no real place to go. Uh, this is going to be a problem. And the American people are struggling. You know, the people are becoming so like, so all these struggles, and then people are becoming dependent on credit card debt with 20% um, of an interest rate, which is unfathomable. Like, I mean, that's unfathomable. So, um, and then you have the job market constricting. So, you know, we have the numbers revising downward from June, of course, by 200,000, uh, you know, workers. I mean, this is crazy. The line always goes one way. I remember when Obama was in office and the, and the economy stunk because Democrats are terrible. And they, uh, everything was just, an, it was a shock. You know, unexpected was the word. I just laughed every single time. The right. Yeah, it was, it was a total. It was a total meme on the right that every time there would be a jobs report or GDP numbers or whatever, and it was unexpectedly fell below expectations. And you know, and we right. were to be like, uh, okay, <laughs> unexpected to who? Like you, you guys, right. everybody else knew exactly what was happening. Um, well, and then Trump gets in office and things start turning around right. and the, all the all the predictions vastly underestimate what he's going to do. And then they talk down the economy like it isn't as good as everybody knows it is. You right. know, real wages went up for uh, blacks and other minorities by seven thousand dollars in one year. And that makes a difference for how you can live your life. Meanwhile, here under Biden, everybody is struggling. And with inflation, they have lost money. I, I have the last two years. I have in real terms gone backwards and lost money. And that's true for most Americans. Yeah. And it's un unsustainable. And we have a, gener a couple generations now who have known nothing but good times. Right. And this, I don't know how um, they're going to handle what's coming. Well, and I mean, you know, it, it, you can pull this back out to 50,000 feet and look at the fact that the government is in the same position that the Gen Zers and millennials are, right? I mean, the government is on a credit card and, and can't make ends meet because you know, we're running trillion dollar deficits. Of course, nobody, nobody at the federal level even thinks about this, and some of them will argue that it doesn't matter, which is pure insanity. But everything that you just recited, Melissa, brought me back to something, and it, and it involves the you know um, the you know the shrinkage in packaging and the uh, the forced reductions in inventory and the the auto industry and all these other. Appliance manufacturers is the same way. All of this stuff is, it's of a piece. And you know what this is? Um, greed? Well, it's that, but you can get away with greed when there aren't enough producers in the marketplace. Right. And I go back, um, and of course, you know, this is kind of a semi-plug for, for my book, but as part of the, the research for Racism, Revenge, and Ruin, uh, which will be out October 10th, by the way. Um, oh, so, and, and we should 
I think later this week, and certainly early next week, it'll be available for pre-sale on Amazon. So excellent. We'll, yeah, but in doing the um, the research for the book, yeah, I came across something that I kind of only barely remembered, which was this dinner that Obama had um, in like the spring of two thousand nine with like this whole raft of. Um, left-wing historians, the Doris Kearns Goodwins of the world and the Michael Besh losses and so forth. Um, and Ed Klein picked up on this in, in his book that he wrote about Obama. And it was like the substance of this dinner, among other things, was that Obama said that he favored an economy that was um, driven by a very small number of players in each economic sector um, that were big corporations uh, working with the government, which is a fascist economy, by the way. But also, if you're going to put it in an American context, it was sort of, you know, the uh, the FDR model, right? The New Deal was based on getting all of the big incumbent players in the economy together with the federal government and setting these, you know, arbitrary and stupid uh, regulatory schemes in place that in every event, in every case, destroyed small and mid-sized players right. and startups and all of these, these economic sectors. Well, we are so far past, like grossly overdue for new players, particularly domestically in the automotive market. It's not even funny. Mm -hmm. And thanks to Obama, we actually knocked out sub-manufacturers within GM, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and we've restricted entry into the market from uh, new people based on these cafe standards, right. um, which, you know, because the thing of it is, is if you came out with, you know, some kind of truck, like a something like a Hummer, you would right. sell a ton of those, okay? Like it's some new car company could debut a cool model like that, whether it's pickup trucks or SUVs or something. Um, and, you know, if, if there were no cafe standards, we'd probably have a dozen pretty good car makers in America all competing for the same marketplace. Yeah. Instead, we've had, we've had the big three for so long. Nobody can even remember when there were four major American car companies when the, it was like Studebaker went out of business or something. And that was, like literally you have to go that far back uh, because these guys have basically done regulatory capture on all the federal agencies that regulate auto sales. And now it's it's gone septic because they don't sell anywhere near enough cars that people want and the price is through the roof. They don't right. produce anywhere near enough cars. The price is going through the roof. What they're what they're now trying to produce is EVs, which are federally subsidized and driven by public policy that the consumer simply doesn't want. Okay, you're seeing this kind of contraction in the groceries, the grocery industry, right? Where you've got these big grocery stores that are buying up little mom and pop uh, grocery chains, small and mid-sized people across. You barely have any mom and pop grocery stores exist anymore. Those are pretty much all gone. Um, you know, you're seeing it, like I mentioned, appliance manufacturers, very few appliance manufacturers out there anymore. Um, and so, and, it, and worst of all of this is that in manufacturing of consumer products, there is absolutely no new entry into the marketplace. 
Like there is none. What there is comes from China. Okay. And that's heavily controlled by somebody else's government that's even more hostile to the American consumer than the U.S. federal government is. And so what you have, and I mean, this all plays into this woke corporate crap that we get, because if you have a very robust, uh, competitive corporate environment, you can't get away with these weird uh, employee training seminars with all the be less white and all this other kind. You can't get that if there's a if there's a whole bunch of companies out there. People will just go take another job. But right. when you have an oligopoly where there's only three or four players in a particular economic sector, mm -hmm. okay, you can't get to upper management in mm -hmm. those companies, right? You can't hopscotch your way into a CEO job someplace. It's right. not doable. And you have to hold on to the job that you have. So you will go to that woke corporate HR seminar and you will do what they tell you because right. you're making $150,000 a year and like you're holding on for dear life. And so there's only three or four companies in that field. Okay. Right. You're going to do exactly what they tell you. Right. Um, and, and you can't just go get together with a bunch of other middle management people and say, you know what, we can do a better job. Let's go into business for ourselves. You can't do that if you if you're in the car business or if you're in whatever appliances or you know any kind of major manufacturing. It's like it can't even be done. You can do it on like an industrial, um, you know, there's industrial contracting and things like that that people still will will do that kind of stuff. But if you're manufacturing for the consumer, right, it's gone. And so you have this contraction and this sort of orthodoxy that pops up and it's all about screwing the consumer and there's no outlet for somebody else to get involved and so that's one of the things that's driving prices up and it's ruining the quality of life all of these companies have look at car companies they all have the exact same marketing mm -hmm. right it's all the same um and uh, you know I, like people notice this stuff like they notice it, all the hotels market exactly the same way. I was at a a, a football party uh, Sunday night, and uh, the uh, I think it's the IHG Group, which is a hotel consortium. Holiday Inn is in it, and all these these other ones. Um, and I mean, you know, they're pushing like you know they're pushing the uh, the two gay guys with the freaking room service all over the bed, right? And it's it's jarring. Like, what like what is this? And but this is like twenty five different brands of hotels, right? Right. They're pushing this with this one group that has been buying up hotel chains for the last twenty five years. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so like you've got this consolidation of the economy, the way Obama said he wanted it back in two thousand nine. Um, and at the time, nobody would have thought that he would have been able to pull that together. And now it's like taken for granted that, yeah, there's only a few companies that control everything. Yeah, but the thing so is, the, is the way prices that... are predatory and the quality of the products is, is down. Like you mentioned, you get less when you buy something um, and there's no competition to, to, to fix any of that. Yeah, but the, the thing we're not talking about here is, you know, what Obama knew. And the Alinsky method really 
and emphasizes is external pressure by few people. So in the in yes. social media, you can have literally 10 or 12 dedicated activists constantly hammering away at a certain corporation. In corporations, um, you know, the, the scaredy cat HR offices are going, oh no, we're gonna, you know, this is gonna happen if we don't do it. And so like you have this whole, you know, network of manipulation, both of the corporations and of the individuals. And and the answer to it is just no. You know, just yeah. no, we're not gonna do it. But the corporations found uh, because they're staffed by people who were sympathetic to the activists and then who, you know, and then you get the thing that happened with like Bud Light. And this is happening throughout all of, you know, um, corporations just about everywhere. And, and the ESG junk, which is not governmental, it's a non-governmental organization that has come up with these arbitrary standards that corporations have bought into that were pushed, are pushed by activists who were Obama administration officials, and now they're part of this NGO, and they're um, within the whole federal bureaucracy and everything. And so you have the the kind of here, adhere to these things and you'll be safe. It's, it is the biggest shakedown. You know, it used to be that um, Al Sharpton and uh, Jesse Jackson, um, you know, their Rainbow Coalition bullcrap, where they would right. go to someone like GM and say, our activists won't um, bother you about racism if you give us money. Right. And so, you know, everybody from GM to Trump or whatever, and it was a big grift. And then it would keep the leadership of, you know, forget Black Lives Matter and, you know, buying all the houses. It would keep a whole bunch of people, you know, the grievance industry shut up. Well, now you have a whole host of these various, you know, people who view themselves as perpetual victims and and. But the difference is, is there used to be some sort of kind of contempt between the corporations and this shakedown. I mean, they both knew what was happening, but they hated it. Now you have corporations who you have stakeholders within them, not the not the actual um, stockholders, but you have people within the organization who hate their own system and don't mind uh, destroying it from within because it's inherently racist, sexist, homophobic, whatever. And they believe that they need to, you know, they're not just making a beer. They're making the world right for everybody. They're creating oh. some kind of friggin' utopia through their corporation. And so well, you have this yeah. unholy it, well, alliance. And, and the, you know, and the, and the, and the big piece to that is, okay, these are people that got hired on out of college Okay, it's not the right. family business. They didn't build it, right? right. They, they just right. got high. They're just hirelings. They come on like this, particularly in top management, right? I mean, it's so many different p companies that are not run by you know the first generation or the second generation or in some cases the third generation of the family whose company 
you know, it was. You take this thing public, you don't have control over it anymore, and it just goes to some guy who's got an MBA from Wharton or Harvard or whatever, where God knows what they taught him uh, or her. And, you know, they're going to go and, and market the thing the way they want. They're going to run the company the way they want. Um, and most of these corporations don't have any soul anymore. Um, right. Uh, well, they're, they're, they're operating on the, th the fumes of former greatness. And, and so you have these um, corporations and let's just talk about the products themselves. So now we're like, I, I got into this looking at shampoo cause I freaked out cause there's some thing. Yeah, I remember that discussion a couple podcasts ago. Okay. Yeah. Right. So we talked about that. Well, what was shocking was how few, uh, corporate, you know, it's like three corporations make all the shampoo and they, right. you know, they smell a little different and they, you know, might have different texture, whatever, but they're all essentially the same thing. And yeah. that's true with so many things and it's unnecessary. So for the, for the consumer to sit there and step back and go, I need this. I don't need this. I actually, you know, um, if at any point the American consumer goes, you know what? I can survive with a bar of ivory soap. I really don't need to, to have all of this other stuff. You know, the whole of the economy will just, you know, because right. it's built on manufactured need. And so like every part of it is, um, kind of fault. Well, well and, and you're going to eventually get that because of what we talked about before with people running up credit card debt just to survive. Right. So, you know, it's sooner or later, you're, particularly with younger people who don't make that much money, they're going to go, okay, you know, like me and my friends talk about going off the grid all the time. Can't do it, but I'm going broke trying to live my parents' life. Right. So, what are the things I need and what are the things I don't? And then boom, 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 boom. All these things go away because they're like, you know what? I don't need it. Then right. what happens? And like that is your, you know, there's your like major contraction in economic demand, which of course the people that are currently in charge of the government are going to try to fix by injecting more money into the economy, which is running up larger and larger federal debt. Um, to try to keep this entire engine running when, in many cases, you know, like there are parts of that engine that either need to be replaced or don't, right? For, for example, like you look at Coca-Cola and all the woke crap they put their employees through and, you know, all of the political statements that they make. And Coca-Cola is run by foreigners now, okay? I mean, it's like, it's not even an it's you know headquarters in Atlanta or whatever, but it's not even really an American company. It's a soulless multinational. They have a million different brands of drinks. Um, Coca Cola itself is uh, greatly diminished from its standpoint of market share. Younger people are not that fired up about Coke because they know it does. It's not really good for you. Mm -hmm. um you know it's it's a matter of time before you know the fatties get together and file a class action suit against coke for all the <laughs> high fructose corn syrup they put in their product that makes everybody fat i mean that's gonna happen um and so you know like what's the future of that company and the answer is eh, 
not that great, right? I mean, Coke is probably better as a small niche um, uh, niche product that, you know, people drink classic Coke or whatever. And then there's other companies that do other things. And maybe we get to that point down the road. But like, you know, that's an example. Gillette is another example, right? I mean, men grow beards now rather than use Gillette products. And I don't know whether it's related to the fact that Jeanette Gillette started doing friggin' transgender people in their shaving commercials. Um, like, I don't know whether that's the case or not, but certainly that was another company that's run by foreigners. Right. I think the, I think the CEO of Gillette is Sri Lankan um, mm -hmm. or Gillette North America. The CEO of Sri Lankan has no idea about the market, puts this transgender commercial out there and, you know, and the stock crashes and the and the market share crashes and, you know, all the men start growing beards because they don't want to use a Gillette razor anymore. Um, you know, so like you have a lot of companies out there. Daniel Greenfield a year or so ago wrote a great piece. It was like, it's not get woke, go broke. It's go broke and then get woke. Because mm -hmm. um, he said, look, all of the major players in this woke corporate environment are declining companies. You know, they're companies where the people that built them are no longer around. They, you know, they took it public, sold out, and, you know, they're off doing something else or they're not doing anything because they're just enjoying the money. And now it's just a bunch of functionaries who are tasked with keeping the, the brand basically where it is at a lower production cost because you can't really expand the market share. You know, and you can go back to the Bud Light uh, thing with Dylan Mulvaney. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, whatever that girl's name was, Heinerscheid or whatever the, the the marketing exec was that came up with that idea. And her her entire little screed that everybody remembers is perfectly um, illustrative of this. She said, you know, well, it's a declining brand and people see Bud Light as sort of a fratty beer and we have to do something. And they told me I had to, you know, do something about the market share. And this was, you know, inclusionary and that's why we did it. Well, you trash the market share, but the whole point was like, they gave you leave to do this because they were terrified about where they were because you're no longer growing. You're no longer doing anything. Anheuser-Busch was bought out by InBev, which is some soulless Belgian company that, you know, long ago lost its corporate identity as being something. And now, you know, you're you're not really Budweiser. Actually, the, the family uh, is talking about buying Bud and Bud Light back mm -hmm. and saying, hey, we can turn this brand around because we actually know what it means, right? Right. Right. No takers yet, but in you know, in time maybe that'll happen. But the point is, this is like these are not the people that built these these beer brands. They don't care. It's to them, it's like an overgrown marketing project from freaking, you know, Penn or Princeton or something. Um, and you know, and you don't you can't run a great economy that way. And the, I come back to it again and again. The way you fix this is new people coming into the market to kick the ass of the incumbents, right? You have too many, you know, Sears and JC Penney's in the economy, but because of regulatory capture, they're held in place rather than have the Waltons come along and whip their butt. Right. Um, and and you know, and and create some some renewal and some growth in the economy. And until 
particularly the Republican Party, because from a governmental standpoint, it has to be the Republicans that fix this because the Democrats are absolutely wallowing in this slop right now. Um, until the Republican Party is willing to actually think of these things and say, OK, let's get into the antitrust game. Let's get into some of this stuff. Let's rediscover some of what Teddy Roosevelt understood that the rest of us are all embarrassed by. You do need some of this. And, you know, like I talk to, you know, Republicans all the time and, you know, politically, they don't get it. They have no concept of this. They know something's wrong, but it's like, well, that's not free market. It's like, yeah, but we don't have a free market. Anymore. We don't have a free market. This is my argument. And they've corrupted this. Yeah. They've torn it apart and they've turned it into an oligopoly, which if you know anything about economics, I mean, an oligopoly is a monopoly, but, but just with a few guys instead of just one. Right. Right. And that is the antithesis of a free market. And that is where we I mean, we've been moving toward this really since that dinner in 2009, if right. not before. But we've been accelerated in moving toward this. And it has to be broken up. You've got to reopen the economy so that entrepreneurs can make their way back in. Um, otherwise, you can't have the revival and you're going to have a crash. So, I, you know. I, I mean, eventually this is going to get across and and people will recognize it and change will come. The problem is how much suffering you're going to get in the meantime. And you're right. We are three to six months away, maybe less, from the kind of crisis situation with, with consumer economics in this country um, that, you know, forces this thing to be seen as unsustainable. Yeah. Well, I mean, so the Bidenomics, which what cracks me up is the Democrats and the administration are praising it like like people are stupid and not understanding how great they are. Um, and there seems to be this kind of weird dichotomy. And, and, and this is my concern. It was my concern during the Obama years. If the this economy doesn't really touch the kind of top 20%, one of the things Obama learned is that if he kept the if you, the college educated kept their unemployment rate below 4%, he was fine. And it's a very cynical thing. He didn't really care about the working class, middle class, whatever. As long as the college educated were doing fine um, and had jobs, he could win because he would get the, you know, the bottom and he'd get the college educated. And that's really been the Democrats MO. Single yeah. women, college educated, the very wealthy, and then the vast unwashed who are stupid. And so like basically the cynical and the stupid. And then the middle class has moved to the Republicans. And but the Republicans don't care about them either because they want that corporate money to get elected. And so really, the the engine of America have been ignored, which is why Trump got into office and why he will get into office again, save all of the, um, you know, ways that the various states and, um, you know, all the lawsuits 
they're, I mean, literally trying to get him off the ballot in certain states. We, we're in unprecedented territory here because of the hatred that um, both the Democrats and the Republicans have of a disruptor. And yet without a disruptor- Can't fix it. It, can't, it cannot be fixed. And yep. I'm not saying that Trump is the only, you know, some gift from God or anything like that, but I am saying he is asking at least the right questions, but they're the questions that nobody within the elite class in America or around the world wants to answer. They want to kind of um, inflate, 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 pretend, 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 and kick the can down the road and hope it all works out with no co concept. You know, I wrote two pieces uh, in the last week and a half, um, basically lambasting the Republicans, uh, which got, got enough feedback that we got phone calls at the office, Scott saying basically <laughs> how bad I of a person I am. And, you know, you know, you've hit pay dirt when everybody's screaming, yeah. but, um, basically I was talking about the political implications of everything that's happening and how the Republicans, because they're going along with what the Democrats are doing, not just with the economy, uh, not just in elite institutions, but also politically, um, and legally, that that the Republicans are setting themselves up to never win again and to be a regional party, would, which I said, governing nothing but their own squabbles is basically what I said. And that is exactly what's going to happen. They don't understand that by putting up with all of this baloney that Trump has had to deal with, that they are participating in their own downfall. And I I just I don't know how to get these people to get the point. You know, the the structural things, uh policies that were put in place ostensibly beca because of COVID that allowed the Democrats to steal the election. And yes, it was stolen. And I don't even I'm tired of like pretending that it wasn't. Um and the Republicans are going to have to deal with. They're going to have to deal with the fact that there's uh, universal um, balloting in Colorado, Oregon, and Nevada, and that no Republican has any uh, ability to win with the way the Democrats harvest votes in national elections. There's yeah. a whole apparatus for this. And the Republicans think that somehow if Trump is off the ballot, that that magically goes away. No, the only thing that happens for the Republicans is they go back and losing with dignity, but they're losing. Right. And you well, can't I mean, get you know, policy and, when you lose. And I've had this conversation a whole bunch of times, um, you know, and 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 look, I mean, I've, I've said it. I like the way DeSantis handles some of these attacks uh, better than I like the way Trump does. Yeah. Um, but. You know, this whole business of these indictments, don't think for if something were to happen, if Trump were to have a medical issue or whatever and drop out of the race, and then all of a sudden DeSantis was the front runner, that day, someone would indict Ron DeSantis in yep. Massachusetts or whatever for having put illegals on a plane and sent them yep. to Martha's Vineyard or Chicago or wherever he may have sent them. Okay. 
they would indict there would be a DA somewhere on the South Texas border that had some illegals that ended up in Florida and getting sent someplace else. And he would be indicted for that, right? Yeah. It's kidnapping or whatever it is that they're going to, or human trafficking or something. Right. They would indict him. And then every left-wing media organization would, would take that indictment and treat it as legitimate and mm -hmm. not political. And, yeah. you know, Ron DeSantis is a criminal, blah, 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 blah. We know I mean, it's happening already. I mean, Gavin Newsom is suing Greg Abbott in the state of Texas for sending sure. illegal immigrants to California. Absolutely. This is the I mean, MO. Every single part and piece of politics is being uh, abused weaponized. the legal right. process. Right. Well, and, and so the, the point here is, um, you know, and the Bill Crystals of the world refuse to get it all right but the thing of it is, is this had nothing to do with trump these indictments right. this is purely a manifestation of how utterly corrupt um uh you know this this kind of elite democrat party ruling class crowd is you right. know in, in the previous podcast we had liz merle who's the solicitor general of louisiana on and she touched on this right she said these are the people who totally disrespect all of the institutions that the country is founded on and have no compunction about corrupting them for their own you know personal political power um because they never gave a damn about them in the first place right um you know and that's like really really dangerous because it takes us out of the circumstances that we all grew up with, which was, well, there's liberals and there's conservatives and they all basically want the same social goods. And now what we're going to do is we're going to argue about how to provide those to the people. Right. Well, you know, and why Obama was so important was that he was a, a break from that. It was already kind of beginning to happen, but he completely broke it apart by bringing the hard left, not just into the Democrat Party, but giving them power over the Democrat Party right. so that that consensus was no longer operable. Right. Um, and I, I did uh, last week, I did this radio show. Um and they actually had discovered the Revivalist Manifesto, my book that I wrote last year, um, talking about, you know, sort of the, the different eras of American politics and how like what we're in is sort of the end of the third era. And they kind of hit me with it like, how sure are you that we're in the third era still? Like, right. it could be we're in the fourth era and we've just like, well, OK, that's what we've got to stop. Right. Because, yeah, you could maybe see. 2008 as the end of that third era of American politics that began with the New Deal and, you know, mm -hmm. went through the Great Society. And all of a sudden, we're now in a fourth era that has manifested itself in basically Chinese communism. Right. Um, you know, and of course, it's up to the Republican Party and I think the American people to fix that. And it may very well be that Trump is the, the imperfect martyr slash savior for this um but he's all you got right unless you know unless somebody like vivek or or desantis or or whatever is gonna is gonna um you know somehow 
succeed Trump, which right now it's hard to see how that's going to happen. Like, well, how did have to have some sort of disruptor to this system, or else it's going to it's going to set itself in concrete, and we're going to be living in an America that nobody younger than forty would recognize from when they grew up. Okay, this is where I get irritated because. You know, we just breeze past what the Republicans tend to breeze past, which is one, how does Vivek or Ron DeSantis win the primary, never mind the general? And I'm not saying they are. I'm just no, saying no, I know if you're something not were saying to happen that. and they was one of them instead right. of Trump. Right. But that's the that's the thing. If something were to happen, I mean right. what we're talking about uh Trump being um if you, you know, listen to Tucker Carlson, it's about Trump being assassinated. Right. Well, right. I mean, assassinated because, I mean, everything else that's been happening hasn't been working to stop him. Right. And so, you know, let's be really concrete here. So we're waiting on something very bad to happen to Trump in order for one of these other guys to get the nomination. And then how do they win the general? How? Do they win Ohio? Do they win Wisconsin? Do they are they competitive in Michigan? Are they can they even get anywhere near uh, winning uh, Pennsylvania? Are they going to suddenly win Arizona, which has been you know deluged with Cal you know liberal Californians who can't quite you know hold their nose to move to Texas but want to get out of the regulatory and tax rates of California. So they're going to win that back and they're going to win Georgia. You know, how exactly does all of this happen? And no one is really talking about that. How do you get to those electoral votes that you need? I mean, you better have a really, really, really good plan either to harvest ballots on your own or challenge uh, challenge lines on the voter voter rolls where people don't actually exist and all these different like you better be. And you don't necessarily have to run around the country talking about it, but you damn sure had better have a plan for the block and tackle. Um, and the sad but what thing, are you, but the thing is, I, I, I mean, yeah, you, this is how you do it. The chances of that happening with anybody, the RNC is worthless. Well, and that's what I was coming to. And, and but here's the yeah. thing. OK, um, you know, everybody differentiates between the RNC and Trump. Ronald McDaniel is Trump's RNC chair. He's backed her three straight elections. Which okay. is insane on in his part. 20 and 22. And she's, yeah. she does a horrible job. Right. Um, you know, but the RNC should be, I mean, if you're if you're the the flip side of the DNC, all of this stuff that's done, this machine ballot harvest, that's all done through the Democrat Party and it and the allied NGO organizations that it works with. And the RNC has no um analog for that no well the the, the the dnc so runs who's building it and and is right. if trump is not building it who's you know who else is doing it and like who's even who's even demanding it is the is the worst part about it this is all left to state parties okay state right. parties don't have the resources for this state parties notoriously are broke have no cash and yet right. you're going to dump all of the field level work on them, right? And it needs to be the party. It doesn't need to be the candidate. The candidate has his own problems, okay? And and this stuff has to be professionalized so that it is it's not stood back up 
every election cycle. It has to go on. This has to be a daily thing that's done. You've got to challenge all the, the fraudulent uh, lines on the voter rolls. You've got to make sure that you have people ready to go as a precinct captain, even in a special election for a state legislative seat. Okay. Like you need to be, you need to have all these things in place on a continuous basis because that's how the Democrats win Oregon and Virginia and uh, Michigan and all these states where the Republicans come tantalizingly close and then, you know, don't make it. And like, you know, last week I got so irritated when they broke Tudor Dixon out right? And had her running around. She's now got this podcast and iHeart picked it up. And now it's going to be the Tudor Dixon thing. It's a matter of time before there's the Tudor Dixon show on Fox News. Like we can see this coming. They are grooming her for something. All right. And her, what's her, what is her big message? She does this podcast with Trump and Trump talks about it. Like, oh yeah. Tudor Dixon lost the governor's race in Michigan because of abortion. So all of you pro-life activist people need to take a back seat in the party so that we can surrender to Planned Parenthood and the pro-abortion crowd, right? And, and I wrote this last week at The Spectator. I said, look, abortion is a symptom, okay? The symptom is, is or the, the disease, rather, is that the Democrats, through everything they're doing in the culture and in politics— are creating more and more and more single women who will vote Democrat on a D plus 37 margin, right? The, the most important numbers in American politics are these four. Married men are R plus 20. Married women are R plus 14. Unmarried men are R plus seven. Unmarried women are D plus 37. And if you're the Democrats, the way you operate, when you see that number, you say, we want as many of those people as we can get. So everything, all of the messaging, cultural, political, economic, that is targeted toward women and particularly single women is made to make them not just unmarried, but unmarriageable, right? Right, right. All of this you go girl stuff, all of these yep. you know, six sixes and all of this stuff in the yep. dating market. And nobody talks about this in, in a political context, but they have to go to any of these relationship YouTube channels and all of these dating coaches and everything, men and women, okay? They talk about this over and over and over again. What the hell is wrong with these women that are like demanding that they find a guy that makes a million dollars a year because no other man is worthwhile, right? Well, that not just that. I mean, the thing is, is that they have this these woke politics. Let me just word to Absolutely. the word to the wise ladies. You want to get a man on a dating app? Just put conservative in big bold letters on your profile. Yeah, you're four times more likely to get a guy. Four you times. will four times. And the thing is, is quality men too. So. Yeah. Like, and keep your yap shut about your how you feel about transgender stuff or whatever. And if you want a relationship and don't want to have, um, you know, political disputes in your house, because who wants that and who lives like that? You know, find yourself a man. It's not that difficult. But well, but, but the whole goodness. point is, is that all of this messaging, and I mean, you know. All yeah. the way, I mean, every action movie is 
chicks beating up guys twice their size. I mean, right. it, it is, it's, it's gotten to the point. None of these movies make any money anymore because nobody wants to watch that. They're like, everybody's tired of it. And there are videos. I saw another one this morning and Tim Pool had it. And it was these two fat, ugly women that accosted some guy for whatever purpose. I have no idea. And he told him to get away. And one of them freaking slapped him. Oh. And, and so what does he do? He beats the hell out of both of them. And, you know, Tim Pool had his thing. He said, she hit him first, right? And the comment, there was no, there was no like chivalry in the comments because everybody's like, yeah, well, you know, right. Like you're not going to act like a lady. You're not going to be treated like one. And I mean, that's awful to see that, but it's where we are as a society because somebody told this woman that she could go slap a guy that was way bigger than she is, even though she's three bills fat, right? <laughs> she's, oh, I'm going to go slap this guy. Well, guess what? doesn't work out too well for you. You're not Wonder Woman, right? Right. And, but, okay, and then these are stupid people, all right? I, I grant you all that. The guy that hit the girl was a stupid person, okay? But the whole point is, is that this is what you get as a response to nonstop bombardment of dumb messaging that's counterproductive and makes people worse, you know, right. and we see we keep seeing this over and over and over again, these manifestations of our society being full of people who can't self-govern. Right. OK. And it's really, really easy to met to make people when you control all of the levers of culture in society and you give people bad messages that make their lives worse and they don't even know why. Right. So you tell women you can do anything that a man can do when it's not true. And then they try to do things that a man, a man can do and they can. And then they, they feel inadequate when they, the answer is, Hey, let's not do dumb things. You know, like you have all of these strengths. Let's maximize that, which is the way society used to treat women. Right. And everybody got married because there was complimentary um, culture between men and women. Now men and women are at war and guess who that benefits? That benefits the, the Democrats who have a D plus 37 number that all they've got. I mean, they can make that number bigger, maybe, but they can make the number of the demographic that's D plus 37 even bigger and shrink the R plus 14 demographic at the same time. And if you think that they're not actively doing this, then you're not paying attention. Well, the thing is, is that you have the, the cultural piece. You have the spiritual piece because people are abandoning God. And so yeah, like everything is spiritual piece here now and material. Then you have the political piece where the Republicans care more about money and then they care about what doing what's right. So the incentive structure is for them to basically crap on their own voters consistently yep. forever. And then you have a political apparatus who would rather have Biden you know, I said this on a because I was just irritated uh, on on Houston talk show, um, you know, morning drive or something, KTRH, and uh, the hosts were like, "So you think that the Republicans in D.C. would rather have Biden?" I said, "A hundred percent," because the gravy train keeps rolling for them. Doesn't matter that it hurts all the people. 
They don't want someone who's going to upset this apple cart. I mean, they impeached Trump because he had a conversation, a legit one, as it turns out, with the Ukrainian people basically saying, hey, what's going on with this guy? This seems pretty corrupt. And the the Bidens make sure that the corruption can stand. And it's not just them. It's all the you know, I could name a whole list of people, whether it be Romney's people, whether it be John Kerry's people, Nancy Pelosi's rotten kid, you go on and on and on. If they are not directly involved with money laundering through Ukraine, they're indirectly involved in it. And they're not the only ones. And so you you have um, just a wholly corrupt elite. And then you have people who are complacent when people are when the average person is struggling just to make it month to month they can't they don't have time and and it's too big and too vast to think about what the federal government is doing they're they're just trying to make it every day and day out and uh and then you have the other people who aren't feeling any pain at all and so they're happy with things the way they are and so like, the, you know, they might have the means to move out of Beverly Hills so they don't have to step over drug addicted homeless people anymore. And um, or, you know, get sentries, uh, sentries outside their, you know, the gates of their home to protect them. And um, and then they're OK. And they're in their cloistered communities. It, it is a really, really toxic cultural problem. And I don't think that the Republicans are anywhere near up to meeting the task. And furthermore, I don't think they want to. You need a, um, and and I'm going to end this on somewhat of a hopeful note, because as as you know, Melissa, um, I'm running a pack here in Louisiana that's working on legislative races. Right. Um, And, uh, and, have had conversations with people in other states that are kind of reporting some of the same thing, although very few of them actually have an election cycle this year. There is a better Republican Party bubbling up from the bottom. Okay. Um, And, you know, like we have talked to so many really, really, really good, great people who are now running for the state legislatures when that was a crap job that nobody wanted and you got basically used car salesmen that did that in the past now you're getting legitimately good people patriots who see everything around them and actually feel a calling to do something yeah that is going to percolate upward now how long it takes and whether it's in time you know that's maybe the issue um but I think there are much better people at the lower rungs of politics now than there were 15 years ago. Um, and of course, the the morons from 15 years ago are the, the problem now. Um, but I do think that there's a better crew of folks out there. And I think that you will start to see them percolate up into Congress, statewide uh, elected positions, maybe the Senate. It probably will take a while before you get somebody really good that runs for president. Um, unless, you know, Ron DeSantis learns how to campaign, maybe. But um, you have a better party. The problem is you have such a bad party at the very top. And the personification of this is Mitch McConnell. 
um, who won't even go away, despite the fact that, you know, he's he's like your your uh, laptop computer that needs to be re-imaged and it freezes up all the time. Right. Like I never really would have thought that somebody who is going to sit there like catatonic for 30 seconds at a time after he gets asked a question continues to be the leader of the Senate caucus of his party. And yet there isn't even a, a push at this point among Republicans in the Senate that, hey, it's probably time that we put Mitch out to pasture a little bit and let's get a new guy in. You're not even hearing that. They're afraid to even come out and say that. And that should tell you just how sick and demented that, you know, we talk about Biden, but the entire Republican Washington apparatus. It's it's like an uh, and this 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 fits a couple of different ways. It's an ancient regime, right? It's 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 the old regime, like prior to World War One in Europe, where you had all of these kind of stultified, uh, you know, monarchical dynasties in Austria and France and some of these other places, you know. Um, no Russia that nobody had a clue what was going on. These guys were just, just kind of pretending like things were the way they were 50 years before. And these idiots led themselves into a war that basically destroyed the entire structure of European government, World War One. And we have that in America right now. We even have a war that these idiots are working on getting us into that can destroy the entire structure of American government. Right. And none of them are even paying attention. And those of us who are looking at Ukraine and some of these other things and saying, hey, none of this is sustainable. You're going to have to have real massive reforms or mm -hmm. else we're going to lose all of it. Mm -hmm. And they call you a terrorist. They call you every name in the book right. because they don't want to appreciate the mess that they've made across the board. Mitch McConnell, if he had any integrity or any decency, would have never run for re-election in 2020. He would have never done that. That would have been insane for him to do. He was too old. He knew he wasn't in good physical shape. And yet he did it anyway. And so we're going to get stuck probably with a Democrat replacement for Mitch McConnell when these like little strokes he keeps having become a massive stroke and he goes away. And that'll be the end of Mitch McConnell. And he'll be sitting there in office, and we will get a Democrat uh, senator from the state of Kentucky, at least for a year or two, or a couple of years, whatever. Um, and who knows what happens then? You know, but rather than move somebody else into that position, the Republican Party is going to stand there flat-footed. Because they're stupid. They're the Washington generals. They're born losers. And... It's going to require citizens to come and take over that party and make it good enough to have a revival. But yet they built a structure that enables morons to run the party. Well, maybe it's time for a new party. I mean, I don't know, but I, I, I just I'm not sure because the Republican brand is so toxic uh, across the you know, the board, half the, or a good chunk of the independents are just former Republicans who can't. Oh, absolutely. I think, I think most independents are conservatives who have had it with the Republican party. Right. Um, so, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what is, you know, you talk about the hopefulness of the people coming up, 
And I remember when the Tea Party folks were coming up and starry-eyed and idealistic and did make a difference, it gave Republicans huge wins. And I do think that- uh, Well, I mean, and what good Republicans are in positions of power or, or authority come from the Tea Party movement. Right. So that, that wasn't, that movement was not wasted. Like, no, it wasn't it, wasted. It, it, it gave you what hopeful um, signs you can see from the GOP came from the Tea Party. And I think that this crew that's coming up now will largely be reinforcements for them. And it might be enough. It might be enough to turn things around. It has to be enough because, I mean, like philosophically, the new party idea sounds great. The problem is, how do you build all that structure? Yeah. It's the same thing we were talking about earlier with the automakers and all these other things. Okay, you have two incumbents in the market. And there's no room for another one because of the structure that the two incumbents in the market have made. Right. Right. It's just, you know, so a new party basically gives the Democrats and the Democrats, the Democrat Party has to collapse at the same time the Republican Party has uh, collapses. And then maybe you can have some sort of renewal of the political process with different people in charge. OK, but that that kind of mutually assured destruction means that those two sets of idiots will prop each other up in perpetuity. Right. Well, on that happy note, um, the maybe we should talk about Burning Man for just five minutes to, to end on okay. a quasi-humorous thing. So okay. Burning, <laughs> Burning Man is not burning. It is, it is a it's wet man. man. It's raining man. It's raining man. They do Burning Man in the desert Nevada, which is this big sort of arts festival that's kind of a woodstocky thing if you're not really paying attention to burning man and it's a big you know cultural thing particularly out on the west coast um except this year the desert is not so um it's not so deserty I... <laughs> like a heavy rainstorm that came in like late last week and deluged burning man and actually turned the grounds of the festival into ankle deep mud um, and you can't get in or out of there. The, they, they couldn't service the portable bathrooms and, and oh, showers no. and whatever. So like all of that backed up and, oh, no. you know, there was, I guess, I don't know, knocked out the electricity over there or whatever. And so this oh, no. entire thing has turned into like an emergency situation, um, you know, and so, and, and, you know, the funny thing was, is that when Burning Man got started, there was this video of the tribal police that I guess it's their uh, their area or whatever that they do Burning Man on. And these people had blocked off the entrance into um, the grounds, these climate nuts or whatever. And so they put up a barrier on the road and here comes this tribal cop in a friggin' pickup truck who blows through the barrier, sends people diving everywhere and then he's arresting everybody. <laughs> they act, oh, this is still horrible thing. You know, block the road like that tribe makes a whole lot of money off of burning man every year right you shouldn't mess with their revenues and so the cops came and basically i'm not gonna say brutalized these people he just arrested them and was kind of ugly about it um and they didn't like that so that was like an ignominious beginning to burning man and then right. it rains and now it's an ignominious end and you know 
I, I, there are probably like six Republicans that go to Burning Man. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, like everybody else, it's kind of like, oh, that's terrible that that happened to you. Uh, <laughs> and there's this video of the uh, comedian Diplo uh, and Chris Rock getting in a pickup truck that somebody had and came and picked people up and they hooked you know, hitched a ride in the bed of this truck, um, you know, to get out of there with, mm -hmm. you know, ankle deep mud spraying everywhere as the pickup truck leaves. Pitying, a little man. disaster and somewhat of a uh, microcosm of kind of what America is now, right? Like, first the there's the woke protest that nobody's interested in. And then there's the, um, there's the, uh, the, um natural effects of of uh of you know what happens when you do something that is uh subject to being messed up and it gets messed up and then there, there's the unpreparedness of people for what happens when things mm -hmm. do get messed up and it's basically you can uh you can look at uh maybe the period of 2020 to 2026 in America through the lens of what happened at Burning Man this week. <laughs> well, so, uh, you know, on that happy note, um, I hope that everybody uh, has a great week. Uh, and thank you, Scott, for com coming in here. I, I'm curious from our readers and, and viewers how the economy is affecting them. Because I, I know that it is affecting pretty much everybody at this point it, it it's just anxiety provoking and there's nothing like the anxiety of seeing your credit cards go up and up and up and then that sense of panic when you add up and and realize no matter what i do i cannot pay this off and then with 20 percent interest rate it does not take long to get to that point, yep. you know? Um, so I, I'm just curious anyway. Well, you're not alone if you are suffering. Uh, there's a lot of people in that boat. And I think that it's time. I think the Americans are in the position of having to recalibrate their expectations for their lifestyle. And uh, that's going to be a big shift and a big change. So anyway, uh, we've got, you know, now it's post-Labor Day. Welcome to the campaign season. It's going to be starting in earnest, everybody. And of course, Scott and I will be talking about that as we go forward. I I'm genuinely curious about how this uh, campaign is going to go. It's going to be so bizarre because Trump is fending off all these lawsuits. And so there will be lots to talk about, um, both on the left and right. You know, Biden's like got one step foot in the grave. And so, you know, the, you've got various um, uh, Democrats salivating to to um, bump him off and nobody's really having the courage to do it yet. And so, like, this is going to be a very strange political season, I think, this next year. And mm -hmm. we'll be, we will be covering it all. So thank you for listening and watching. Thank you, Scott. And um, we'll see you next week. See you guys. Stay dry.